0: Welcome to season two of The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to women about their paths toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Hi, everyone. Today, we have a special episode. This is our first live episode of The 43% Podcast hosted in the beautiful Helmsley Building at Grand Central in New York City. Thank you to RXR Realty for hosting us during their Week of Women. I felt so lucky to have the chance to talk to Pamela Stone. Pamela is a professor of sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. She has contributed articles to numerous books and journals, including American Sociological Review, Gender and Society, and Teaching Sociology on topics including gender inequality in employment, occupational classification and measurement, job segregation, pay equity, and the work family interface, as well as lectured, consulted, and provided expert testimony about these issues. Her research has been supported by a variety of funders, including the National Science Foundation and the Sloan Foundation. In our conversation, she covered a vast array of topics and really focused on her reasons for writing the recently published book, Opting Out, Why Women Really Quit Careers and Head Home.
1: Um, So earlier this year, I started the 43% with the idea of sharing the more nuanced stories of women navigating family and career. Uh, We often get presented with a very binary view of the world of work from the media, and I felt like the storyline right now is either lean in or lean out. And I knew from my own experience and from other women in my network that those options don't really tell the full story. In fact, um, I had two boys who are here with me today, uh, right here in New York City, (laughs) before before I stepped out of the corporate world for more than three years. Um, I went on to start my own business, raise capital, led a division in a a greater than $3 billion company, and now I serve on a board of directors for a private equity-backed company, and I work for Techstars, which is designed to help help entrepreneurs succeed. Um, but you know my point is that the idea that you step in or step out doesn't really tell the story of what's possible. So that's why I'm incredibly excited to be here today with Dr. Pamela Stone, professor of sociology at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City of University of New York. She's the author of the recently released book, and you can hold it up. for <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should my go get PR this. Here. Opting back in, what really happens when mothers go back to work. Pamela has written extensively about gender inequality and was the recipient of the fellowship at Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University, and she was also um, a visiting scholar at the Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. So very, very excited to have you here on the 43% today. Thanks for joining. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so your um, it's really it feels very serendipitous that we're talking today uh, because of the topic that you've been researching for several years now with your recent book. It's so aligned with the conversations that we're having on the forty three percent. I feel like um, when I stepped out of the workforce in two thousand three, I could be one of your case studies. Uh, so could you start you know off by kicking off what prompted you to explore this topic back in two thousand seven, and what prompted you to re dig into it now okay
2: as a sociologist my specialty has been gender and gender inequality and I focus on issues of work and family throughout my career Um, then I became a mom so it was no longer an academic subject right I was actually living many things I was studying and one of the things I noticed I moved out from the city to the suburbs to a near in suburb Larchmont New York some of you may know it and uh, I started getting to know other moms. Because once your kids start in elementary school, kindergarten, you start running into the other moms a lot more. It's sad but true, we all kind of know in schools who are the quote unquote working moms and who are the stay-at-home moms. And there is not necessarily a tension between them, but there's a clear awareness of who's who. And as I started getting to know more of these women, I discovered that many of them, these stay-at-home moms, had had very big careers, had worked for big firms, had you know it up positions of considerable authority. I remember once we were looking to recruit a treasurer for our PTA, and somebody said, well, she was the CFO of and then named a big corporation. She said, I guess she can do our books, you know. <laughs> uh, so it was things like this that were really surprising to me because I really wasn't the narrative. I'm talking now in the 80s, uh, early 90s. That really wasn't the narrative. The narrative was that women who had very successful careers would, of course, be pursuing those careers. So it did sort of pique my curiosity what was going on. With these women who seem to be sort of countering the narrative, the feminist narrative. And of course, from the bigger point of view, we were also starting to see real, what we call stall, in terms of gender inequality. So there was a period in the 70s and 80s where it seemed like onward and upward. Women were entering all sorts of new occupations, the wage gap was narrowing, and all of a sudden, near that ground to a complete mm-hmm. halt. So kind of Obviously, if you're not working, if you're taking time out of the labor force, that has implications for your earnings, for your career progression. So all of those things for me, that made that a bigger problem. The bigger issue was one of the reasons I wanted to study this. And um, so I set out to do it. This was before the so-called Opting Out Revolution article that gave this phenomenon a name. So when I started studying it, it didn't have a name. I didn't come up with anything catchy like Opting Out. And it was not that easy to get people interested in the topic, frankly, Um, but I persevered and uh, did the research, and right as I'm finishing up, this article gets published in the New York Times, the opt-out revolution, which was evidently, at that time anyway, it elicited more comments and controversy than any article had ever been published. So I thought, whoa, you know, all of a sudden my research, I'm the only person who's done research on this. I actually went on the Today Show, for example. I hadn't even published a book yet. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, you know, finding out a very different narrative. So what, I, what, what, what uh, Lisa Belkin was hearing was that women were really sort of evincing a true preference shift. They were deciding, yeah, you know, I'd rather be at home, I'd rather.
1: And and, do you, and is that where you found that they would rather be at home, or they felt like the options? Yeah, weren't I had terrifying? been finding
2: a very different thing from when mm-hmm. I was talking to. Her. I was hearing from women, very similar women to the ones she interviewed, um, that the reason they had quit was was very first of all very reluctantly. Last resort, and it was because of the nature of the workplace, and that the workplace was completely unaccommodating to them once they became mothers, and there was all sorts of things that ended up pushing them out. So I started to to study it because it really was something that was I was living and right around me, and and unknown and surprising. And then, as I said, it became a a topic, uh, much to my. Amazement in some ways, as a scholar, you don't expect that to happen. But when I talked to the women, my question was really looking backward at what led them to quit? Why did they make that de- fateful decision to quit? I did talk to them about what do they want to do in the future? Did they plan to go back to work? They were all at home when I spoke with them. And so I did know what their plans were, but of course, I didn't I, that was the end of the study. I didn't know what actually happened.
1: So I think you know, and from, Everyone has different paths, and there's obviously windy roads here. Not a lot of people actually know what it's like to be a professor and to do this type of research. So, how old were your kids when you started doing this type of research, and what does it involve? What, is, what does a typical day look yeah. like? Well, where-
2: this is, it's going to be embarrassing to tell you how old my kids were when I first started this research. So, I, I one of the things that, that really triggered this as a topic to me was, was dropping my kindergarten son off. Mm-hmm. So, kindergarten, five years old. Uh, he's now 31. Um, <laughs> Things go slowly in the academy because you have to get funding, you have to do lit reviews, you have to do peer review. Everything is very purposely very slowed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the research part of your job as a professor is kind of what you do on the side. I mean, you, what your immediate job is teaching and admin, that kind of thing. So in an odd kind of way, you're, you're fitting your research in on the side. And then when I had children, apropos of what we're talking about yeah. here, obviously I had more demands on my time. Um, so it took, it took a while to get the research actually going. And uh, as I said, the question, unfortunately, about what happened to these women just has not gone away. The stall that I talked about, is st- we're still in a stall. There's been yep. very little movement in terms of leadership or the earnings gap. So all the issues that motivated the big issues that motivated the first book are alive and well. And regrettably, there's been no big solutions, right, to how women you know, cope and, and families well, cope and with work and family. In
1: your book, you brought up an interesting point of the idea of the catch-22, that even when women do return to work, they're often trying to do so in a way that makes their family work, but that that solves for them individually and doesn't actually solve for what we're all dealing right. with as a, as a society. Right, right. Did, you you're advocating for some policy changes. Can you share a little more of what what would a perfect world look like you? Well, I know these will seem like sort you? of
2: radical and crazy, but I remember I as sociologists we had to say these things. Um, <laughs> one of the things that became so clear, but in both books, is that time is the great divider. That indeed. To the extent that jobs, especially professional jobs, have been ramping up in intensity, and we've gotten to almost a culture of overwork, where 50-hour you know, weeks are nothing, you know nothing, and people routinely work those. That's really tough on working families, and of course we know that it's usually the women who bear still the major responsibility for childcare and household management. So time becomes really the essential mm-hmm. problem. So the first thing that I you know would would advocate for is you know we've got to find ways to get employers to recognize what they're doing to their workforce and what they're doing to gender and gender inequality by maintaining these ridiculously long hours. There's tons of research that shows people aren't even productive past a certain point. So this long hour is a cultural thing. It's not borne out by any real studies of productivity or the like. There are all sorts of detriments to it, health detriments, et cetera. And so you know that's number one, is I think we really have to rethink our work culture and we have to figure out ways to, to Make technology, for example, work for us, not working for it, because we all know that's another thing that's Mm -hmm. tethering us and making us even more available. So I think the first thing is really rethinking the way we work. And as a sociologist, I believe that work is a social construction. So I believe we can deconstruct it, we can reconstruct it. You know, there's Mm -hmm. nothing that says we have to work the way we're working. Many... Countries have very different patterns of work yeah. than we have, right? Like in their counterpart countries, and there's oftentimes branches of the same company overseas that works a completely different way than they work here. That's number one. Um, number two, you know, one of the things that I see in my research is that that women who um, are trying to get back in oftentimes really radically reinvent themselves. They walk away basically from what they were doing and start over. And they often end up starting over in what we would call female dominated jobs. So these would be jobs like teaching, nonprofit sector. As a result, they take a huge pay cut mm-hmm. because any job that is a female dominated job is devalued by virtue of the number of percentage of women in it. That's, you know, chicken and the egg kind of thing. So one of the things we argue is look, you know, these are great jobs, but women shouldn't have to take a step down by becoming a teacher, for example. So we, we would argue that let's if we could make these jobs reflect their pay, reflect what they really, you know, really require, and get the kind of respect that these kinds of professions deserve, that would also make it easier and better for women. They wouldn't be taking, such as I said, such a step down in status and pay.
1: And that's one of the things we were looking at in some research recently, the idea that you often, people talk about the high cost of daycare. The high cost of daycare it eats up such a big percentage of your take-home pay. Yeah, it's not actually enough to afford the person who's providing the daycare a high quality of life. So you're in this constant cycle of no, nobody's actually getting what they need. And we all know that the research shows that having that individualized care and attention on young kids makes a difference. Um, so one of the things I thought was interesting in your book too, I, which I loved reading, was the idea that there's been a shift in how mothers perceive the role of mother, how women perceive the role, and by having had a career, if I read it correctly. Um, when they step into the full-time parenthood, often treat that as a new job. And so could you share a little more about that and what the implications you see are for the broader society with that kind of approach?
2: Right. Well, these are women who have had, the women that I studied had worked on average 10 years before they quit. They'd had pretty significant careers actually in, in terms of reaching, you know, certainly managerial ranks, sometimes quite senior ranks. Um, so they were fully professionalized, right? That was a big mm-hmm. part of their identity was indeed their professional identity. Uh, And because they said they left very, very reluctantly, Uh, they were often kind of pissed off. Frankly, they were kind of angry about it. And I remember one woman saying, "Well, you know, if I'm going to be," they didn't, by the way, expect to be full-time mothers. That was another piece of the puzzle. These are not women who said, "You know, my lifelong dream is to become a full-time stay-at-home mom." These were women whose actual aspiration was to do both—to have work and family—and they would say, "I can't even believe you're talking to me. I never thought I'd be in this Mm -hmm. situation." So, at any rate. they, the women wanted to, when they got back to, to being mothers, they basically said things like, I'm going to be the best damn mother I can be. If I, if I, you know, I have to give up my career, if that's really what it came to, I'm going to be the best damn mother I can be. And they did indeed, and because it's, again, when you're for socialized professionally, you, it's kind of like part of you. They brought to uh, their their task at home some of the same skills and lingo. They would talk about being the COO of the household. Mm-hmm. Um, their community volunteer work was always at an incredibly sophisticated and high level. They would you know, you know, they were way beyond bake sales. They mm-hmm. would do take on significant volunteer roles in which they could use a lot of the skills that they had you know used and developed as they when they work.
0: I traveled from Boston to New York City for my interview with Pamela and had to rush to the live podcast recording near Grand Central. I intentionally wore my beta brand dress pant yoga pants because they are super comfy while also designed to look professional. When it comes to travel, these pants are a dream come true. Not only do they feel good and look great, but they're also super functional. They have a style with eight, yes, eight pockets. So I don't have to worry about where to put my keys, my phone, and my wallet. Thanks to this amazing design, I don't have to worry about searching through my bag for something important when I'm on the go. And that's why I started wearing Beta Brands Dress Pant Yoga Pants in black. Now 43% listeners can get theirs for 20% off. Visit betabrand.com slash 43% to get 20% off yours today. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D dot 43 P-E-R-C-E-N-T to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants today.
1: And do you feel that that, that sort of, so it, it's kind of raising the bar for everyone in a way? I was talking to someone recently who, earlier in the season, who was, um, you know, she was talking a lot about the, the motherhood penalty, on um, the return to work, um, and how even when a, a man steps away from work, maybe because he had a windfall, maybe he... You know, got fired. Who knows what happened? But for some reason, when men come back in, there's a perception that, in fact, maybe they're worth more now because they could take some time off. And um, women often feel like they are somehow lacking and don't see that what they did at home, even when they take on all those roles, translates to more success in the corporate world. No, I think balance.
2: that's right. I think there's no question that the women see a motherhood penalty, although it's declining. I'm happy to say there has been some decline in the size mm-hmm. of the penalty. Women still see it and what fathers get is they get a fatherhood premium. They get paid more money by virtue of being fathers when you hold everything constant. So mm-hmm. because the idea being this they're 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 seen as breadwinners. This is seen as stability. There's as for women what is it it's seen motherhood is seen as, as taking away their commitment. It's seen as an interruption. It's seen as a demonstrating a lack of commitment on their part. So the two parenthood works obviously very differently for men than for women. Yeah.
1: Yeah I actually had someone say it once to me like, oh well we're we're it, this was before I had kids, someone actually said to me, well we're not gonna talk to you right now about the race because your coworker has a family. But I don't remember <laughs> ever having that conversation with me later. Um, you know, so how do you, when you think about younger women now coming up who are, uh, and with the, the way the college loan uh, crisis is sort of hitting everyone and everyone is thinking about how they maximize their, you know, their ROI on their college experience as they enter the workforce, is it, do you see it as sustainable right now? Like how does someone, how how can a younger woman who might be listening or thinking about this right now, um, how can, how do you think of them? thinking about family and balancing it all with the way things are, or do you think that's it, we just need to completely rethink the factory mindset?
2: You know, I was, regrettably, I feel like young women are kind of like deer in the headlights. And unfortunately, it's too often it's the young women and not the young men, mm-hmm. you know, who are now who are thinking about these issues. Um, I feel like you know they—they they know we don't have any paid family leave. Mm-hmm. Um, they know that if they work for certain kinds of firms, the good, good, good firms, they'll get paid family leave. But those those firms are typically the ones that are most characterized by overwork mm-hmm. and high demand. So you've got the catch to another catchment issue there. Um, I, you know, I, I feel sometimes like I'm kind of a, a voice of doom and gloom because I'm a little cynical about either the improvements that I've, or the lack of improvements that I've seen in the world of work. Um, You know, I feel that companies talk a good game about being flexible and supporting work-life balance, a word that most of us hate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But on the ground is a very different matter. And what you hear, the women that I interviewed had worked for great companies that had great policies on the books, they would often quite sort of ruefully say to me, you know, my company was always voted the best place for working moms, and then they would tell me this story about how they'd been denied, you know, part-time In-time work or they'd been denied flexibility. And so it's very different what is sort of on the books and what's what's out there for public consumption and what's really happening on the ground in these companies. And again, the big problem is because we don't have a real movement for reduced-hour, or flexible work. What happens is it gets sort of put together in a half-assed way, it's not what we would call institutionalized, it tends to be worked out one-on-one between mm-hmm. you and your immediate boss, who often says, don't tell anybody else about this, give it to you, I have to give it to everybody. So they're, you know, they're already, you're shaming it. And it turns out that we've seen what we call flexibility stigma, and that this is a very real phenomenon, that those who, women in my study, thought they were doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. They thought, I'm pioneering, I'm working out these flexible arrangements, only to find them completely penalized and to see them fall apart. So how would they fall apart? Well, the part-time would stop being part-time after a short period, but they'd be paid 80%, but they'd be working 100 plus. Um, They would see all the meaningful responsibilities taken away. There was as if bosses could not figure out a way to allocate meaningful jobs and meaningful work to people who were working anything other than 50 hours plus. So there's so many things undermining uh, this ability to work in a sensible fashion. Uh, so, and I, you know, it's, it's sad. I, I mean, I wish companies would, would, you know, put a better game forward and talk, you know, talk a little less and walk the talk. You know? It's
1: really, the, I love the idea of rethinking the sort of the 40 hour or 50 hour a week's Factory mindset, and there's been writers in the last few years who are popular and means like Tim Ferriss, with the idea of the four-day work week. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a big trend happening where where men are actually
2: jumping onto, you know, regrettably, the, the Yeah, regrettably, <laughs> yeah. As we can all imagine, that oftentimes helps the visibility of the issue. That's not a women's issue, it
1: right? Is seen as,
2: a, yeah, gender neutral, a men's issue too.
1: But so as we're so if, as you're looking at the the sort of factory mindset that causes so many of the challenges and some of the themes that have come up over and over again on the the, the the season so far with different guests is the idea that some of the biggest challenges especially with younger kids are simply around logistics like you know if there's a meeting at three o'clock in the afternoon and that's where pickup is there's no negotiation of course you're going to go get your kid right um how how do you think people can rethink the workforce
2: uh, but it's certainly not easily. I mean, I do think, and one of the things we call for in the, in the, this book, I feel like we're at a moment. As somebody who's studied gender for a very, very long time, I do feel the Me Too movement, the times up. I think these are, we're at a, mo- a moment where women are starting to say, "What is going on? This is mm-hmm. you know this is, this is crazy," you know. And I'm hoping that there'll be that we'll take this sort of notion of why is this happening and how dysfunctional is this? You know, why is this? This is crazy. I'm hoping that women will kind of mobilize around some of these issues that we're talking about here. You need to mobilize around so many issues. You need to mobilize around paid child care. Mm-hmm. You need to mobilize again against anti-pregnancy discrimination. You know the list is on and on. So it's not an easy battle. But I do think that we need to be thinking. The pressure probably has to come more from women um, to make the, the case that, that you know you can be productive. You can do the job you need to do. and still have a little bit of flexibility, which is typically. Flexibility we're talking about is, is around the margins and oftentimes for a relatively limited window in a woman's work life, for example. It's, the only, you know, it's not mm-hmm. forever, right? It's oftentimes that initial transition back when people are still figuring out you know, what, what to do. Um, so I think it's not easy, but I think that, that we have to keep demanding and asking.
1: Is there a particular story of the different women that you researched over the years? Is there a particular one that jumped out at you for personal or professional reasons that made you really, you know, question either the choices they were making or um, made you rethink what they were facing and why they made the choice as a result? It's
2: um, an interesting question. You know, I talked to so many women and I heard such similar stories mm-hmm. from woman after woman. Um, I think what I was mostly impressed by and struck by was how easily corporations, and they tended to work for corporations, a big organization like law firms, how how easily employers let these women go Mm. and how women who clearly were trying to maintain their careers and can continue in their careers. That always amazed me because the sheer talent was just incredible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously recruiting and hiring and then if somebody leaves, recruiting and hiring again, these are huge costs. To companies, and I was always surprised by that. Um, I think I was more surprised by that than probably anything. Um, I was also, in some ways, interested to see how hard, especially the women that I talked to who had been out in you know, the second study when they'd been out for a while, how hard, how hard they worked on getting back to work. Um, so I don't think I have any particular surprise or any particular woman, but I think that they all exhibited, yeah. to, to varying degrees, an amazing commitment to getting back to work. But but, but, having to reconfigure work in ways that was going to, that were going to work with their family,
1: and yeah, could you share a little more, bit more about that and that how that worked out? like when you say it was hard for them to get back in what what specifically was hard, and what were some of the tactical things they had to do?
2: I think well it was it was both easy and hard, easy mm-hmm. in terms of just finding a job once once people learned that these women were not working any longer, they quit their job. These women tend to be embedded in pretty good networks. They, they knew a lot of working people, obviously. They're former co-workers. Um, so once the word got out on the street that they were not working, a lot of people would come out of the woodwork and say, mm-hmm. oh, I've got this, that, or the other project to do, or job to do. Would you be interested? So was, I heard one phrase I heard over and over again throughout the wherever I was, it was, the job found me. We'd ask, I'd sort of mm-hmm. work women through. And these women would say, the job found me. But these were always jobs that were way below their skill level, almost mm-hmm. embarrassingly. You would think, why would somebody even offer somebody a job? But the women were so in eager to get back to work and to keep their hand in that they didn't see it that way at all. They recognized the job was way below their skill set, but that, yeah, this, is just a, this will kind of get me out of the house, get me thinking. And some of them used those jobs um, as a kind of career exploration to think mm-hmm. about new fields. Um, so on the one hand, there was this easy job finding. What was really the challenge, though? was figuring out what they really wanted to do, what would really work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took, by the time a uh, woman really got fully reestablished her career, it was about a decade before she was really backed in, into the workforce and having found something that she really enjoyed and, and felt was a really good fit. Um, and what were they looking for when they went back? They were looking still for flexibility. That had not mm-hmm. gone away. Part of being at home we actually had opened their eyes to things they hadn't even really been thinking about as much. In other words, how much they really could be value added at home in a way that they hadn't appreciated when they were working full time. So they wanted flexibility, even as their kids got older. Uh, and they also, these were women who were, remember, affluent enough to, to quit a professional job and live on one income. So they didn't necessarily have to go back to work, mm-hmm. quote, unquote, have to work. Um, and one of the things that, was, that we've quite, we were quite interested in was giving back. So on their, 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 their second career, so to speak, it was about still maintaining flexibility, but it was also about trying to find something that they felt was aligned with their values and wanting to be as to be able to give back. And this is a function you could say, well, it's, it's women. It's kind of a women's caring, caring thing, right? It's a gendered thing. But it's also something we see as people get older, even among men. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's a function of, old, of aging workers. People start thinking about their legacy. They start thinking about their contribution. And so you saw that with these women. Um, so the hardest thing, I think, was finding that combination of an opportunity that would give them the flexibility they wanted, that would give them a chance to give back. And for many of these women, that meant really starting over and leaving, just basically feeling their former career it was a no-go, and they really did have to start over. So we saw women and you know, who you know had been, one woman who was an editor-in-chief of a publishing company decided to go back and get a teaching degree. Uh, I saw a number of women who got teaching degrees, for example, um, Others who trained in other fields in order to to start over effectively.
1: That's really interesting that they would go back into teaching because obviously that also aligns with the school day. So yeah. again, to your point, that's actually maybe even more of a flexibility. Um,
2: yeah, that's right. They, they definitely that was definitely a rationale for them that they would that the school year would sink. And the other thing that was interesting, of course, is that these were women. Given where I recruited them, I recruited these women largely from fairly selective, you know, quite selective colleges and universities. These were women. I'm sorry to say this, but they would never have thought about going into teaching straight out of undergraduate school. Mm. I mean, teaching was not on their radar screen. Teaching was what women, their mothers did, or before. And part of sort of taking advantage of opportunities as young, advantaged, smart, capable women was to break out of those molds. So that was kind of an irony, that here they Mm -hmm. had never thought about these in the past, but their exposure to the world of schools, because they spent a lot of time at schools, that was the focus of their volunteer activity, really kind of opened their eyes to the contributions that teachers could make and the kind of things that, you know, the worthwhile things that teachers were doing. We can talk a little bit about those.
1: Yeah, I, I would love to learn more about those too. I was talking to someone earlier this year who I think I mentioned she heads up HR for an insurance company, but in Ireland where they actually get six months of guaranteed leave. And I think the job is guaranteed even longer. Um, but they're still struggling with women coming back in with the confidence. Like they feel she said they encounter a lot of women who feel like, well, if you could do this for six months without me, maybe I'm not needed. And then they actually end up staying out longer. Um, I don't know your thoughts on that. Well,
2: I did find in my research that the women definitely stayed out longer than they thought they were going to stay out. I mean, for the reasons I was talking about earlier, they found it was, you know, even though that wasn't their first choice, they actually found their time at home. They they love their kids. So spending time with their kids is a Mm -hmm. great thing. Um, And they found very valuable volunteer work that took, certainly kept them occupied and busy. They also found that they could do a lot of things for their kids. You know, I talk about this as status keeping in the book. You know, that they did a lot to help, you know, move their kids' chances in life forward. Um, so on the one hand, they stayed they stayed longer than they usually ever anticipated mm-hmm. staying, and there was no question that that did sap their confidence, especially around issues, for example, like technology and social media. Yeah. I mean, they perceived that you know they were falling further and further behind, and so some of these programs that uh, help women who are looking to reenter make a point of sort of bringing, pulling, you know, helping bring, brush up the technology and social media. But the other thing is that the women really are for a long time in questing as to what it is they really can do. Because remember, they put an enormous, made an enormous investment in being a lawyer or being a trader or being whatever they had been, you know, that they were, they were walking away from that. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a tough, you know, tough pivotal moment for them to try to figure out do I give all that up and what do I do instead. So that takes a long time. There was a lot of trial and error, a lot of moving in and out of different jobs to try to figure out what was the best fit.
0: And so and
1: you've had such an interesting career path of your own and you said your son is 31 now. Mm,
2: 33.
1: And he you mentioned that, which I thought was interesting that he's now forged his own path and has his own business. Right. To create more flexibility, is he modeling anything after what he learned through your research over the years? I would like
2: to believe so. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and, I, and even more, I'd like to believe because you know I, I was obviously a working mom and um, uh, and having a funny kind of career in this, I mean, day to day kind of thing because you could always be writing, you know. I mean, I could always be up at my desk writing, and so it's not, it's not, it's not as visible. I'm not going to the office to write, you know. I'm right. Writing at home uh, or doing my research at home. So they, on the one hand, they didn't see that, the kind of traditional career. But I will say, I think we, my husband and I did model a very egalitarian household division of labor. You know, So I, I see my boys are both great cooks. They clean. They're, they're, they're good at all that stuff. Uh, but they definitely, and I think, that, you know, I don't have to tell this group, but this is a generational change. I mean, they're looking for new ways to work. And the whole gig economy, I think, is a very double-edged thing. There are ways mm-hmm. in which if you're proactive and it's what you want to do, it can give you great flexibility. There are other ways in which... Frankly, you're being exploited by employers. You're losing benefits. You're losing job stability. You're losing security, and you know you're working very vulnerably. So there, you know, the gig economy cuts both both ways. And uh, you know, in my son's case, you know, he's young. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a software developer. Um, he developed a, a, a game that was fairly successful, so he made a little bit of money, so he can he can take this flyer and do this. Um, but.
1: He's 31 now, so he watched you work from home, but in very prestigious roles, right? Working at a university, writing, Um, and... Did did you, were, How did you manage the logistics in your day? Because because you worked from home, were you able to handle things that other people in a traditional corporate environment Well, yes, know? I
2: was. I mean, I was really fortunate. In fact, I mean, when, when I was department chair for a good period of that, so I would have to go in more than the average faculty member. But, you know, especially in a place like New York, there's a lot of commuting in and out. I work at Hunter, which is up here on the Upper East Side, and at the grad center, which is in the midtown. And um, so, out of, in and out of Grand Central. So the, again, that's pretty typical. That nowadays faculty, because we can do everything we need to do, we can get to libraries, we can get to everything, mm-hmm. just online, right? So people don't typically travel to, to their office in the way they used to. So I do think that I had that kind of uh, flexibility that it was incredibly fortunate. I mean, I, I would never uh, compare when I we used to do these interviews, and I would hear the weeks these women were describing to mm-hmm. me. I would be literally trying not to, you know. Doing my chin-up, you know, it, it was so jaw-dropping, some of these routines compared to what I knew my routine was. I even had something happen once where, again, I told you earlier that people don't know whether, you, whether mom's a stay-at-home or working typically. One, one woman said, oh, I didn't know you worked because I was around a lot. Mm. I could be around a lot. I had certain days that I could sit aside and be around. So I was fortunate, but let me also say it took a toll. I mean, you know, to be a, a really engaged researcher and, and really being writing actively, you really have to be on it. You have to keep doing it. And there's no question that, you know, that I found myself, the, the pace of my writing, the pace of my project slowed down. I mean, my, my CV, you know, is not as strong in some of those early years. It took me a while to get mm. back and, you know, to, to, to uh,
1: and did you have full f- productivity. And how did that relate to or compare to, you know, like your male colleagues who had families doing similar things?
2: Well, you know, it used to be a terrible thing when they started They started giving parental leave. The first thing that happened was being, again, that you have to give it to both men and, and women. And what would happen is the men would come back from parental leave with this burst of publications. Women would come back from parental leave, but things were a little fallow, right? Yeah. So they had, to, we had to, they had to do a little tweaking on that. But you, the fathers now have to show that they're really engaged in some serious care. They can't just take parental leave and use it to publish <laughs> so, because that way you can imagine just publish or perish in the academy. So that kind of thing was just what was supposed to be helping women was one of those completely unintended consequences was actually hurting them. So, But so that's how the
1: myth continues because there is this, I think sometimes when you come back from maternity leave, there's a a vibe or a yeah. message internally that says oh you must have had a nice vacation for the, and not really taking into consideration the physical toll and and right, the emotional absolutely. all the things that are going absolutely. on um, but if men are using the time to to write more books maybe that's why right, people don't right. think that way so if you could go back in time to you know when you were starting your academic career or even when you were in college is there any anything you would whisper to your younger self about things you would do differently or things that you would, Uh, you know, say, keep doing more of that?
2: That's a good question. Um, I think I would be be more careerist. I think I was too much thinking that inspiration was the thing that sort of struck you like a lightning bolt. And I think I was Mm -hmm. too much of a... Of a, of, a, of a thinking of an artistic uh, what I don't think is a true artistic model even but I think I was waiting for that inspiration too much I think I needed to be a little bit more build a resume mm. you know than I was um, I mean it turned out just fine so it's all right but I think you know I think I would have been a, I would have been more a careerist frankly I, mm. I would have been more more purposeful and about about uh, putting projects together and being more more aggressive about seeking out uh, co-authors and things like that
1: so, so you feel like, you, and how would that have, would that have made any changes in the way that you handled your family though?
2: Um, I think it would have made my life a little bit happier. I think mm-hmm. I would have been feeling a little less guilty about the fact that I was staying in the associate professor, which is the middle rank, for a little bit longer than I would have liked. Mm-hmm. I used to sort of feel guilty about that, that my, that my peers, you know, many of them were going forward in their careers and I was not progressing at the, quite their same rate. And so I think probably that frustration channeled itself back a little bit into you know into household relations and mm-hmm. the tenor things. So yeah, I would I wish I would have uh, probably yeah, I think I would have had I had I recognized some of those things. I think it would have been probably a little less career angst for me which would have spilled over.
0: Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter. Cynthia Pimentel, and the whole team at Wonder Media Network. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website at the43percent.com. Thanks again for listening and have an awesome week.